Marcus Paul, almost a public figure. Marcus Paul in the morning. Marcus Paul in the morning. Marcus Paul in the mornings, right across Australia. On the iHeartRadio and TuneIn Radio apps. The biggest issues. The biggest guess. Marcus Paul in the morning starts now. Alright, good morning and welcome to the program. It's a Thursday, it is the second day of June and I'm not frozen stiff, not yet. Jeez, it was really chilly yesterday. Uh, One of the, if not the coldest day of the year so far in many areas of Australia. I hope you're going okay. Uh, Hopefully the winds will die down, particularly along the east coast. It was, uh, it's the wind chill factor that gets me. Big program on the way this morning. My special guest, the Guardian's Van Batham, on loan from the week on Wednesday, one of Australia's best and most listened to political podcasts. Van and uh, man Ben put together a really, really good political discussion each and every Wednesday. Um, If you haven't checked it out, well, I think most of my followers probably already listened to it. Anyway, Van Batam on the program will talk about uh, the new Anthony Albanese government. We'll talk about what's gone wrong with the uh, the Liberal Party. And we'll make reference, too, to an article she's written in The Guardian. A great piece yesterday that I shared on our social media uh, with the headline, Is Australia's election result a teal revolution? or an old story of centre-right flight. Anyway, we'll get all that with Van on the program a little later. Uh, the latest news, naturally, we'll keep you up to date with that. Um, oh, thanks to Air News, I'll go through Anthony Albanese's brand new cabinet. Uh, the ministers were sworn in yesterday in Canberra. It's very inclusive, far less divisive than the last uh, ministry that we had. Uh, The Labor caucus, I think, is very reflective of Australia. Thank you to everyone that's uh, left your comments on our Facebook page, and thank you as well for those that are tuning in uh, to our YouTube channel. Thank you. Uh, If you want to subscribe, Marcus Paul in the morning on YouTube. We still have our little fundraiser running. We'll just keep that going for a while. If you haven't already, try and kick the tin for a couple of bucks. We'd really appreciate it. The GoFundMe link is on the Facebook page, Marcus Paul in the morning. Okay, so a big show on the way. Plenty of news. Uh, Dominic Perrottet looks to be ignoring some of the advice from Infrastructure New South Wales. He will go ahead with his government and commit to the second stage of the Parramatta Light Rail. Uh, Well, I suppose they will go to the election with this one big ticket item. I think it's a political decision. Why? Well, we have a state election coming up inside the next 12 months. So I'll uh, talk about that in some detail as well. All right, great music on the way as well. So let's get into it on this Thursday. It is the second day of June 2022. Our hotline is there if you ever want to call it. 0406521250. And your comments are more than welcome. Marcus Paul in the morning on our social media. All right, let's get into it on this Thursday morning. It's really good to have your company around Australia here on starterfm.com.au, the iHeartRadio platform. Tune in and maybe you catch up on the podcast. Thank you. Well, the infighting continues over what happened in a number of seats in the recent election for the Liberal Party. 
I noticed yesterday a story that said liberals or senior liberals were blaming local MPs who lost their seats for running low energy campaigns. And I have a, a really good example of this. Anyway, they failed to engage voters and in some cases wound up helping their opponents as the coalition continues to rake over the results of the federal election. Yeah, infighting and audits reveal that teals strip libs of more than seats. Yeah, they're scrambling to point the finger at MPs losing seats to the teal independents. Uh, and look, I can tell you in North Sydney, um, my beautiful girl and I stayed for a few days in North Sydney. Um, I think in maybe halfway through the election campaign, every day we saw the teal, local teal independent. I can't remember who it was because I don't normally live in North Sydney. But anyway, um, she ended up winning. Anyway, uh, we saw her mob out and about every single day. The local bloke uh, who was in government, the blue team, nowhere to be seen. Nowhere. Trent Zimmerman, uh, he was the local there in North Sydney. Okay? Gone. Anyway, sources close to the campaign pointed to the efforts of Dr Fiona Martin, who lost the inner West Sydney seat of Reed to Labor's Sally Situ, as well as, there we go, Trent Zimmerman in North Sydney and Dave Sharma in Wentworth. Now, they both lost their seats to Teal independent candidates as examples of what went wrong. Well, as I said, I, <laughs> I saw plenty of Teal in North Sydney when we were there for a few days, but I saw none of the other candidates. According to one source, Dr Martin was the subject of what was described as an intervention when an audit of its campaign management software found that she had done zero door knocking or zero social media. However, another source disputed this and said Fiona had done some social media and door knocking, but not as much as others. Another source said that by continually campaigning on the issue of climate change, Sharma and Zimmerman were essentially fighting on their side of the field. <laughs> okay. Well, look, uh, I've got a photo here of Trent Zimmerman in line in a line of early voters at Crow's Nest. Which street? Oh, okay, that was voting day. Oh, he rocked up on voting day, did he? Anyway, in electorates like Wentworth and North Sydney, climate change was the number one issue for these more affluent electorates. But every time they talked about climate in general terms, they were reminding people of their opponents, rather than talking about the economy, which is, of course, was the coalition's apparent strength. It was obviously a dumb strategy. But all sources acknowledge that in North Sydney and Wentworth, the sheer weight of money being spent on the independence campaign was, as one put it, almost insurmountable. The challenge with Wentworth is that there was plenty of Liberal campaign money, but it wasn't necessarily being directed the right way, and it was often driving issues the wrong way. I think in North Sydney and Wentworth, the sheer scale of resources put into the Teal candidates by Climate 200 and various entities that were funding them was on a scale that was next level. OK, well, look, as I say, I, I could see Teal everywhere in North Sydney. When you travel to other parts of Sydney, even marginal electorates, they raise good money, but this was in, on an entirely different level, we're told. Yeah. Um, Kylie Tink 
that's that's a name. She's the MP. Uh, anyway, she did well. She was all over the joint. Dave Sharma denied, though, yesterday that his campaign was off message and said that he campaigned on what his community cared about. He said, my campaign locally focused on a number of issues, including our economic recovery plan, our investments in national security, local infrastructure upgrades and our support to key public services. Climate is a big issue in Wentworth, including for Liberal voters, and our research consistently showed it was at the top of concerns the electorate wanted to see addressed by government. So naturally, our plan to responsibly transition to lower emissions formed a key plank of my campaign. This is Dave Sharma. To have ignored this issue would have made my prospects even more difficult. Look, my way to my way of thinking, what's happened here? Um, people d- simply didn't trust the Liberals on anything to do with climate. Uh, and that's why I think they've made a big mistake with this different kind of bulldozer, that is, opposition leader Peter Dutton leading the Liberals to the next election. Wasn't he the one that dropped that ridiculous comment in relation to Ireland sinking in the Pacific, uh, not realising it was being recorded by a boom microphone over his buff head? Anyway, the infighting came as Liberals prepared to face off over the future of the party and particularly whether delayed pre-selections hurt Scott Morrison's re-election efforts. Well, there's no doubt that You know, um, pre-selecting candidates at the 11th hour definitely led to some issues. Now, on Tuesday, Senator, uh, New South Wales Senator Andrew Bragg said that the Liberals had become a dictatorship in an email to its members. Oh, he's not happy. Calling for changes to the party's constitution, Mr Bragg apparently wrote, your right to have your say and select our candidates is the most important reason to be a member. Yet this precious right was taken away as our constitution was twisted and buckled. We are determined to ensure that this never happens again. This was an email co-authored with Women's Council Delegate Jane Bunkle. Well, there we go. The infighting is on. Bragg's and Bunkle's email is believed to be a reference to the long-running fight over pre-selections that went all the way to the High Court, of course, on the eve of the election. And that did not, did not help, uh, of course, uh, the Liberals' cause. Anyway, again, um, there's one thing that's missing in all of this. Uh, You can infight and blame, you know, no door knocking and all the rest of it. You can even blame the teal, the climate 200 people, as much as you like. But you're not blaming the one person who I think was the biggest turnoff, and that is the former Prime Minister, Scott Morrison. Marcus Paul in the morning. Thursday morning, Marcus Paul in the morning on iHeartRadio, and of course, tune in, starterfm.com.au, we're right around Australia till 9 o'clock this morning, Australian Eastern Standard Time. Well, as you know, Albo announced his new ministry in the last 24 hours, and uh, there's some familiar faces there, some who we thought would get gigs, and others who unfortunately were expected to, but didn't, for whatever reason. Some, of course suffered election losses like Christina Keneally. Anyway, Albo has unveiled his new ministry. Here's who got what. We'll we'll start with the Deputy Prime Minister, Richard Miles. 
He previously held the employment portfolio when Labor was in opposition, but was long tipped to become Defence Minister if the party was elected. Mr Miles takes the job from former Shadow Defence Minister Brendan O'Connor, who moves to skills and training. And of course he does replace now opposition leader Peter Dutton in the role as Australia's Defence Minister. No surprises here, Adelaide's Senator Penny Wong, well, Foreign Affairs Minister, she was sworn in as the new minister before her and the Prime Minister's trip to Japan for the Quad last week. She's held the shadow portfolio, though, for six years since July 2016, while Labor was in opposition. Now, the Senator wasted no time following her appointment, immediately travelling with the PM to Japan for a meeting of the Quad and then on to Fiji, where she addressed the Pacific Islands Forum. Moving on to the Treasurer. Jim Chalmers is the new Treasurer, but was one of four sworn in just after the election, of course. He will be responsible for handing down the Labor government's first budget later this year. Until now, Mr Chalmers had also been acting Home Affairs Minister in the Interim Ministry. Moving on to Katie Gallagher. Uh, She, of course, is a former Chief Minister of the Australian Capital Territory before being elected as a Senator for Canberra back in 2016. She's very popular in the Territory. Now, the Senator was sworn in last week, of, of course, as Minister for Finance, a signal that overhauling the budget would be one of the government's first priorities. She will also be Minister for Public Service and Minister for Women. The Attorney-General is Mark Dreyfus, a move that is in line with his shadow portfolio for the last term, of course. It's not his first time in the position. He was also the Attorney-General during Julia Gillard's government back in 2013. The Victorian MP represents the seat of Isaacs and was first elected back in 2007. Our new Home Affairs Minister is Claire O'Neill. It is one of the most senior ministries, previously being the Shadow Age Care Minister. Uh, Labor, of course, was left without a Home Affairs Minister after... Well, Christina Keneally lost her seat in that shock defeat for the party. She will be also the Minister for Cyber Security. This is the Victorian MP's first position in Cabinet after serving in the shadow position since 2016. The Health Minister of Australia is Mark Butler. He will look after health and aged care. Of course, that was previously held by retiring Liberal MP Greg Hunts. In his role, he will be responsible for the ongoing management of the COVID pandemic, including future vaccines or outbreaks. Mr Butler is tasked with implementing one of Labor's key election promises, that is improving and reforming the aged care system. It'll be a big job, including providing nurses around the clock. Now, of course, he will also face pressure from state and territory governments to permanently increase hospital funding. Uh, This is a very good appointment. Indigenous MP Linda Burney will take on one of her shadow portfolios, of course, as Minister for Indigenous Australians. Uh, But she's not keeping her her other shadow portfolio of Minister for Families and Social Services. Now, the PM has made clear implementing the Uluru Statement is one of his government's priorities and will be a key task for Miss Burney. 
Senator Pat Dodson won't be in the ministry, but has been tasked with assisting Miss Burney on the Uluru Statement. She is one of six First Nation MPs within the Labor caucus. Education Minister will be Jason Clare. Jason comes from Western Sydney. He was Minister for Home Affairs and Justice Minister when Labor was last in government. He takes the education portfolio from Tanya Plibersek as housing moves to Julie Collins. Our Resources Minister will be Madeleine King, as well as representing the Northern Australia portfolio. The West Australian MP was first elected back in 2016 and has been in the Shadow Ministry since 2018. Chris Bowen will be the new Minister for Climate Change and Energy and will be tasked with implementing the government's 2030 target of 43% emissions reduction. Given the makeup of the parliament and the presence of more Greens and pro-climate action independent MPs, it's likely the government will face pressure to go further than what it promised at the election. Now, Mr Bowen will have to navigate that environment and how Labor remains true to its campaign promises while working with the crossbench, particularly in the Senate, to pass legislation. Now, looking after the environments and water minister will be Tanya Plibersek. She shifts from her long-held position of education. She previously held the status of women portfolio between 2007 and 2010 before moving on to become the health minister. The New South Wales MP was first elected to Parliament back in, well, way back in 1998. This is a new ministry, the National Disability Insurance Scheme. Bill Shorten, former Labor leader, of course, uh, lost the last election, but he has been rewarded for his good work. He is the Minister for the National Disability Insurance Scheme, as well as Minister for Government Services. He'll oversee the rapidly expanding NDIS, which currently costs more than Medicare. The former Labor leader has also been vocal in his criticism of the previous government's so-called robo-debt scheme. During the campaign, Labor promised to set up a royal commission into the scheme if elected, a process that Mr Shorten will oversee. Now, Tasmanian MP Julie Collins is now Labor's Housing and Homelessness Minister and Minister for Small Business. She has previously served in Cabinet as Housing Minister in the dying months of the last Labor government. Looking after industry and science, Ed Husick, a Western Sydney MP who used to regularly appear on this program, actually. He will serve as the Minister for Industry and Science. He was first elected in 2010 and has served in a number of shadow ministry roles, including human services, agriculture and the digital economy. Now, Mr Husick will be the first Muslim cabinet minister in Australian history. Looking after trade and tourism is Don Farrell. He is also Special Minister of State. His previous role in opposition as Shadow Minister for Sport has been moved out of Cabinet. Senator Farrell has been in the Parliament since 2008 and is one of several Cabinet Ministers with previous experience as a Government Minister. Infrastructure and Transport. 
Catherine King is another Labor MP with previous Cabinet experience, serving briefly in Cabinet as Minister for Regional Australia, Local Government and Territories before being forced into opposition. She will hold the Infrastructure, Transport, Regional Development and Local Government portfolio. Brendan O'Connor. He held the Shadow Defence portfolio, but he's moved now into the Skills and Training Ministry to make way for Richard Miles to take up defence. He's returning to the portfolio after previously serving as Skills and Training Minister when Labor was last in government. Australia's new Communications Minister is Michelle Rowland. And she's one of only a few of Mr Albanese's new cabinet who has never held a ministry in government. She retains the communications portfolio, which she represented for Labor while it was in opposition. Murray Watts enters cabinet as Minister for Agriculture, Fisheries and Forestry and Minister for Emergency Management. The Senator was elected for Queensland back in 2016 and held the shadow portfolios for emergency management and Queensland resources before the election. Now, Australia's new social services minister is South Australia's Amanda Rishworth. The youth and early childhood education portfolio that she held as a shadow minister has now been taken out of cabinet. Now, Miss Rishworth has been an MP since 2007, representing the South Australian seat of Kingston. And finally, Tony Burke will be Australia's Employments and Arts Minister. He also keeps his portfolios uh, of, well, employment and workplace relations, and he held that in opposition, as well as to the Arts Ministry. Mr Burke will also be leader of the House of Representatives. He has extensive experience as a minister and has been in Labor cabinet since Kevin Rudd's first term of government back in 2007. So there we go. That's who's who in the new Labor government cabinets. Who got what role on the front bench? This is Marcus Paul in the morning. Now, one of the key issues here at Australia has been housing affordability for quite some time, but there was some news yesterday that house prices around the country have fallen for the first time in nearly two years as rising interest rates now start to bite. Now, the home prices have fallen nationally. It's the first time in at least 20 months, according to two leading monthly indicators, CoreLogic and REA's PopTrack. They put the national monthly fall at around 0.1%. CoreLogic records that as the first monthly decline since September 2020, while PopTrack has it slated as the first fall since the COVID-19 pandemic began. Now, CoreLogic reported much bigger home price falls for Sydney, 1%, and Melbourne, 0.7%, dragging down the national average while PopTrack estimated both cities eased 0.3%. Both indices, though, also found Canberra prices fell last month for the first time in around three years. Now, any of my Canberra listeners and followers would know it's bloody expensive there in the ACT. It's because of all of those well-paid, uh, of course, <laughs> people working for the government. Anyway, the rival data providers also found that price growth remained the highest in Adelaide, 
Brisbane and also some regional areas. Affordable lifestyle regions of Brisbane, Adelaide, regional New South Wales and Tasmania continue to see solid growth with flat or falling prices elsewhere. Now, those that undergo a tree change, well, they're still flocking because the appeal continues. And Natasha DeSano and her husband, Daniel, well, they were in search of more space to raise their three kids. They moved their family to a new home last month. Miss DeSano told the ABC, it was my husband who came with me on the idea. It was for us to build a better life for both my husband and myself and our three kids, to give them more of an opportunity to be on bigger land, to feel free to be themselves, as well as to give us the opportunity to just live a different lifestyle. Not so much of the fast pace from the city. While not technically a regional move, they sold the home they had on 500 square metres in the outer northern western Sydney suburb of Kellyville Ridge. That's around 40 k's from the CBD. They moved about twice as far away from the city to Currajong, where their three children now have two and a half acres to run around on. Are we calling Currajong a, a tree changer? Well, I guess it is, in a way. Anyway, uh, certainly, as well as the extra land and 16 chickens, <laughs> their new home has more bedrooms and living areas, and it also has a granny flat. Uh, she told the ABC, we haven't reduced the loan as much as I guess we would like to have. It's pretty much like we've done a swap. But we were taking advantage of the hop market in selling. Well, after the Reserve Bank lifted the official interest rate last month for the first time in 11 years, Miss DeSano is ready for more increases and is taking steps now to offset increased mortgage repayments. She said, my husband Daniel and I are budgeting very, very tightly so that we're able to just put that little extra away as a buffer for these hard times that I'm sure are on their way. Well, do you agree with her? Are you doing something similar? Are you saving money for a potential increase in your mortgage payments? CoreLogic's research director, Tim Lawless, said rising interest rates were only one factor putting the brakes on an already slowing housing market where price growth peaked in May of last year. Since then, according to Tim, housing has been getting more unaffordable. Households have become increasingly sensitive to higher interest rates as debt levels increased, savings have reduced and lending conditions have tightened. But Mr Lawler said some regional markets might be less vulnerable to falling prices, at least in the short term. He told the ABC, considering we are already seeing the pace of growth easing across most regional markets, it is likely we will see growth conditions softening in line with higher interest rates and worsening affordability pressures. He continued... Arguably, some regional markets will be somewhat insulated from a material downturn in housing values due to an ongoing imbalance between supply and demand, as we continue to see advertised stock levels remain extraordinarily low across regional Australia. Well, that's a bit of gobbledygook. Uh, but people will, obviously, uh, breaking it all down, people will make more C or T uh, tree changes in regional areas because of the unaffordability of our major cities. All right, Marcus Paul in the morning, maybe you'd care to have you say. We've got a uh, post on that story up on the Facebook page.
so I'd love to get your comments. Make sure you let me know online today. Okay, welcome back. Thursday morning, it is the second day of June. Make sure you follow us on Facebook, and please, if you wouldn't mind, give a subscribe to our new YouTube channel. There'll be more videos up over the coming days. Marcus Paul in the morning. Well, uh, of course, I mentioned the story yesterday that Infrastructure New South Wales has recommended in a report, a report that it puts out every five years, that the state government no longer commit to big ticket items, that is the the tunnel from the northern beaches into the city and the tunnel through the Blue Mountains, the M6 down south and others. Uh, Rather, um, it would be better if uh, the New South Wales government focused on smaller, more achievable um, infrastructure uh, goals. All right, well, of course, Dominic Perrottet has kind of ignored some of that and announced yesterday a plan to extend the Parramatta Light Rail to Olympic Park. And he says there'll be $600 million in the budgets this month. Of course, it's budget month in New South Wales. He declared his government will push ahead with Parramatta's Light Rail Stage 2. So there we go. A plan to extend the Parramatta Light Rail to Olympic Park will get $600 million X or $602.4 million. It was confirmed yesterday by the Premier. It will pay for preliminary works, including an environmental impact statement. The figure came in a since-deleted tweet from Premier Dominic Perrottet's account. Now, Mr Perrottet, when asked by reporters, said he had no knowledge of the figure. The money has been pledged for the project in the upcoming state budget with more funding to be committed when it becomes clear how much it will cost to build. Well, (laughs) it'll cost a bloody fortune, we know that. Transport Minister David Elliott. Oh boy, uh, didn't he uh, get handed a poison chalice from Andrew Constance. Anyway, uh, David Elliott also confirmed there would be a local component to the trams on the second stage after pledging the final business case would consider Aussie-made vehicles on the rail. Okay, well, that's good. They're finally starting to learn their lesson. Stop importing crap from overseas like those ferries and other trains. Anyway, Treasurer Matt Keane yesterday said it was an exciting announcement. It's funding the first phase of works that has already been committed in the budget. Premier Perrottet said the June 21 budget would see a substantial contribution toward the project with funding to go toward the first stage of the development, including building a bridge over the Parramatta River. Now, look, I don't want to be cynical. What am I saying? Of course I do. You've got to remember, we've got a state election due in, what, just over six months now. Six, seven months. Parramatta will be a battleground for the incumbents, for Dominic Perrottet's Liberal National Coalition in New South Wales. I have no doubt that they'll throw buckets of money at places like Parramatta in order to, well, I think it's a political decision. I'm not saying it's the wrong decision, but... How will the people on the northern beaches of Sydney feel, considering, you know, they were promised their uh, beaches link 
in the last election. Well, anyway, Infrastructure Minister Rob Stokes said the second stage of the light rail would be the next mega project that gets the tick from government, as other major projects like the Beaches Link, as I say, are put on ice. He said... Uh, Yesterday, as the Premier and Treasurer has indicated, we are selecting one particular mega project which we are determined to deliver for the people of Western Sydney, and that is Parramatta Light Rail Stage 2. Basically, it'll run from, as I said, Parramatta through to Olympic Park. Six-hundred-odd million dollars will be announced, or has been set aside, for the June 21 budget in New South Wales. I think it's political, but, you know, um, if you live on the northern beaches, probably you'd feel a little annoyed by it. Mind you, the Western Sydney population is a lot more than what we have on the northern beaches. Maybe it's common sense, I'm not quite sure. Marcus Paul in the morning. Van Badham, hello. Marcus Paul, my adored, it is so good to speak to you. Is Australia's election result a teal revolution or an old story of centre-right flight? Great piece in The Guardian. Thank you. Uh, Thank you very much. I'm glad you enjoyed it. I felt that it needed to be written. Yeah. The key of it, though, uh, I mean, I I talked on the program about a a story whereby the Liberals, I mean, you make reference to it, they're basically um, infighting, scavenging um, among the ruins, if you like, for something, for anything. Um, But I read today that uh, there's criticism from some within the Liberal Party uh, in these teal seats, for instance, in North Sydney, uh, and also Dave Sharma's seat of Wentworth, that they, they didn't go hard enough. Maybe they took the electorates for granted. Well, I think they certainly took their electorates for granted, but they made the fundamental mistake of not only taking their electorates for granted, but forgetting who their electorates were. Okay. And it was it was particularly interesting to watch over the course of the rise of the teals knowing a bit about the history of the Liberal Party and, of course, the centre-right parties that came before the Liberal Party, which was the original UAP and before that the Nationalist Party, that this is actually something quite cyclic to do with that side of politics, that when that side of politics tacks too far to its hard right, they lose their support amongst small-L Liberal voters. And this is something that's happened in Australia historically again and again. And, of course, if your party is represented by Scott Morrison rather than Malcolm Turnbull, you know, Conservatives uh, will vote for Liberals, but Liberals are not as glued to Conservatives. And Morrison, of course, defined the character of the modern Liberal Party as this sort of brutal, uncaring, illiberal, you know, traditional conservative kind of operation. And that's not actually where the base is in Australia. And, of course, in the seats where they had, like, opportunities to register a protest to the change in identity of the Liberal Party, they took that opportunity. Yeah, well, I mean, they it's a lesson that they'll need to learn, but I, I fear they haven't. I mean, look at who they elected unopposed as their new leader. What do you make of Peter Dutton? 
Well, I, I can only imagine... Well, one of the problems they have is they've lost so many moderates from the caucus to the Teals that the the party is quite out of alignment with its right. traditional voter base now anyway. And one can imagine there are some very dominant voices from the, the safe seats that remain that perhaps think that, you know, Peter Dutton, because he did uh, maintain his seat despite a very aggressive challenge from Ailey France, who was mm. the Labor candidate yeah. in Dixon... Um, even though he only holds it, shall we point out, with a 2% margin, it is hardly the safest seat in the country. Um, one can imagine that he's feeling quite vindicated and, and victorious because he has kept his seat and people who think like him and the Liberal Party, the ones who are left standing, think like him as well. But one has to hope that that he's been given this opportunity specifically to fail. I mean, this is something that the Liberals do from time to time. They do put up untenable leadership candidates just to see uh, where the numbers fall and to sort of sometimes just get it out of people's systems. You'll remember at the end of the Menzies era, you had that revolving door of prime ministers. You had um, Gorton and... Oh God, I can't even remember Billy McMahon. Like there was a group of them in the in the sixties before the election of Whitlam, who you know was sort of revolving door prime ministers. And of course, you had the situation in the long period of Labor government where they were, you know, it was Andrew Peacock, and then it was Howard, and then it was somebody else, then it was Howard again. Like it was quite. Um, you know, enough rope being given for a potential sure. leader to hang themselves with and the party quickly reinvents itself. So one thinks that based on form, that might be the experiment with Dutton, uh, but there is literally no way, no way that yeah. Dutton is going to recover the seats that were lost. And there is no way either. I mean, if, if, if those seats that were won by Labor this time are not seats that are going to drift to Peter Dutton next time. If you voted Labor because you hated Morrison, it, it's unlikely that it, that that Dutton emerges as the as the uh, comparison candidate to Morrison. Really, that's yeah. not really a thing. Okay. You know, if you hated Morrison and the Liberals are now offering you something worse, it's seriously like saying, "I don't want to drink this," you know bowl of vomit and somebody going, well, would you like to try this raccoon poo instead, you know? <laughs> All right. Well, let's move on to the uh, the new government, Anthony Albanese. Um, uh, he announced his ministry yesterday, uh, late last night. They were sworn in today. Uh, what do you make of it all? Look, I think it's a very sophisticated selection from Albanese. I think it's got one eye on the present and one eye on the future. Okay. Labor, of course, has very specific rules about trying to maintain as much diversity in the cabinet and the front bench as possible. And that's diversity of which seats people are from and what kind of communities they represent, what states they're from, what their factional backgrounds are, you know, what their union backgrounds are, you know, uh, whether they're women. All of these are taken into account. And it's a balancing act. Like, it's it's important because you need to stay in government. Your government has to look like Australia. And certainly I think this is the most representative government we've seen in some time. They're only a couple of seats away from reaching a 50-50 proportional split uh, male to female. Yes. You know, there's more ethnic diversity than oh, absolutely. anyone's ever seen in a major party. There was actually a really emotional photo that came out of Western Australia of their 
um, their parliamentary representatives in Labor mm. from WA. And it was actually, I I found it really quite emotional. You know, you had Anna Ali and you had Pat Dodson yes. and you had Louise Pratt and you had Sue Lyons and you had Glenn Stirl, like this representation of people who came from the shop floor and rose through the Labor Party's union people. You have intellectuals like Anna Ali, you know, uh, you have um, Louise Pratt who was an activist from the LGBTQIA community. You, you know, like you have the first um, – hijab-wearing Muslim representative yes. in the Senate. Like, all of these things are a really big deal. We also have um, the first the, Muslim senator um, in Ed Husey. Yeah, yeah, the Muslim senator. And you had a, a you know, Malaysian-born former dolphin trainer who speaks yeah. nine languages, who's the new member for Tangy. Penny Wong put out a lovely tweet about her and Sam Lim um, praising that the Malaysian-Australian representation has doubled in the caucus. Which yes. Is, and it's that kind of stuff. It's really, it's really moving. Like, mm. it's – you just think, yeah, this – this looks like this looks like who we are as a community. Well, I, in terms I agree. of the selection of the cabinet, like I think those issues have been taken into account, and they have they've picked some very strong performers with really like comprehensive policy experience into certain portfolios, and they've made some very smart tactical decisions about yeah. who to deploy in various areas as well. Well. Um... Christina Keneally, I wanted to talk to you about that situation. Was it wrong? Um, and perhaps, uh, you know, hindsight's a good thing, as we know, but um, I always did worry about parachuting her from, you know, pit water into Cabramatta Creek, into Sydney Southwest, uh, into that seat of Fowler. Um, I've done a fair bit of work in construction around that area, and I, I, I you know, I, I, I worried. I really did. And, and once um, certain sections of the press got a hold of it, um, and obviously a lot of them didn't like Christina Keneally, and they ran the negative campaign, I I thought she was a, on a hiding to nothing. So I wasn't surprised, to be honest, by the result. Is, that, is this something uh, that we, I guess, Labor need to learn? Well, I mean... I think that whoever made that decision needs to learn it. Yeah. I, I mean, I knew Christina very well. Uh, yes. She is was a former Guardian columnist. We used to work together, mm-hmm. um, and we did marriage equality events together uh, numerous times. And she was somebody for whom I had a lot of admiration, especially as this is somebody who came from a factory floor in Ohio and ended up as the, the Premier of New South Wales. Well, that's Canada. right. I, I just That's what I mean. The whole thing, it's a waste, in my opinion. I mean, someone well, she, who... Yeah. She is a woman of exceptional skills. Yes. And I'm, I'm sure that this is not the last we will hear of her. But I do think the judgment around that particular pre-selection was mishandled. Yeah, I think okay. there are ways of... There are ways of doing it. I personally, um, I always think that a parachuted candidate is a mistake because it takes up enormous amount of resources. If you're putting somebody into a, a seat, especially in a really hyper-local era that we live in, uh, the amount of resources in order to sort of channel that and facilitate that and sure. spread the word and build in the backing, you know, if you're living a, campaigning in a resource-limited environment... I think you've got to look at a balance sheet and go, is is the risk 
worth the amount of investment that we have to put in to um, to compensate for that risk. Sure. And I, I wouldn't do it. I mean, branches don't like it. If you lose your branches, you no. lose the people who run your grassroots campaign. You know, you devalue the, the membership of being part of a party, a large part of which is choosing your representation, like your representation. Mm. And I think it happened very quickly and I, I don't think it was – um, backed in with a strategy that it probably should have. I think a lot yeah. of people have learnt from that experience. All right. But it's, it's, un, it's unfortunate. It is. It is. Well, much to everyone's relief, um, Barnaby is himself relieved to have lost the Nationals' leadership. Uh, what do you make of, the, the, I guess, the, uh, the new uh, junior partner of the coalition in opposition? What do you make of their new leadership structure? Well, I found it very difficult uh, to really have an opinion about the new leadership structure of the National Party, given mm. the fact their new leader is barely distinguishable from a wall. David uh, Littleproud? Uh, it just, he, he is not one that really inspires with uh, charisma or vision, okay. Mr Littleproud. Um, mm. I'm incapable of making a character assessment because I'm yet to the emergence of any character. But I did describe the uh, the brief circus of... Uh, of Nationals' uh, leadership uh, gladiatorialism as like watching <laughs> seagulls fight over a twisty. And it was entertaining for five minutes and it meant Yeah, nothing. fair enough. Yeah. All right. Well, uh, I mean, uh, Barnaby Joyce, uh, I, I'm kind of relieved to see him go, uh, to be honest, because I thought um, – yeah, I mean, there's history there as a water envoy. He really, uh, in, I think, let regional Australia down under the new leadership with Little Proud and this other. I mean, you don't, you say you don't know much about David Little Proud. I'd never heard of uh, his deputy previously, Perrin Davy. Uh, but they say they're going to focus on the regions. I mean, they held their uh, their heartland. In fairness, uh, I was actually kind of surprised that Barnaby went. Well, I mean, there's enormous amounts of loyalty to the National Party in in um, rural Australia because yeah. it's generational and it's cultural, okay. you know. And we forget those in the city. It's diff- like there's a very different perception of uh, country politics than exists in the country. You know, the the various identities from the National Party who sort of you know grow their national brand by, you know, yelling at inner-city latte sippers or whatever they decide to call us, can often be quite collaborative and conciliatory. Like, I live in rural Australia, as yeah. you know, and, you know, when there's a disaster or, or when there's a trouble or, trouble or, or someone needs help, you know, people in rural communities don't care if you vote left, right or indifferent. True. They rally Very together. Yeah. And, you know, and I think that's that did make Andrew Constance a threat in the seat of Gilmore was that, you know, he was some who was identified with that sort of country, you know, you know that country tradition. True, although, you know, I, you know, yeah, the people Sarah in Gilmore, yeah, the, sorry, Van, the people in Gilmore, though, weren't really let down by his failings as transport minister in New South Wales, I mean. Not the way the people of Newcastle <sighs> were. They were completely yeah, let down and their yeah. city will forever be blemished by his decisions. Um, and, I mean, I was thrilled that Fiona Phillips prevailed in Gilmore and yes. that Andrew Constance failed. Uh, I, I've got to say, I thought that was a great result for mm. 
the people in Gilmore, um, let alone the country. But um, but Barnaby Joyce, he may be out of the leadership now, but he's been out of the leadership before. Yeah, he has. He's sort of like, you know, Barnaby Joyce is the political equivalent of a skin condition. You know, <laughs> like you may not see it for a while, but it's always there <laughs> under the surface and it could come back at any time. <laughs> All right, Van, how's the podcast going? The week on Wednesday, I see, I see you still top of the charts in uh, political podcasts. I've got to say, the yeah. week on Wednesday grows week on week. Wonderful. Uh, we just had another record month um, and clocked 50,000 people for the month of May, which was very exciting. Fantastic. Um, and we love doing it and uh, we have ambition to do more events. We mm-hmm. also had 50,000 people tune in for our election night telecast. I know. I our, was one of them. It was wonderful. With our friends from Socially Democratic and we had yeah. the best time. You know, if you're not going to enjoy any of the other ele- election telecasts, we thought, why not make our own? So that was fantastic. And we had Grace Tame and we had uh, Senator Sue Lyons and we had Chansey Pike, who's now the new Attorney General in the Northern Territory, and Will Streck, who's the TikTok star, and um, yeah. Trad, like an amazing one. And you had Jordan, friendly Jordan. Yeah, had beautiful Jordan as well. <laughs> like it was great. Simon Holmes, the court, Brad yep. Chirquot, like it was just a galaxy of stars Wonderful. and a really great conversation about the issues that matter to us and the values that our audience shares. So, yeah, we'll be doing more kind of crazy projects like that because people keep turning up and it just encourages us, really. No, absolutely. Uh, no, well, I'm just having a look at, uh, so, what, 50,000 in the month, eh? I had yeah. 6,449 last month. That's all right for me. Yeah, well, you've only just started. We've been <laughs> at it for a couple of years now. Yeah, so. all right. You'll have to let me in on a few secrets. <laughs> It's all about the Google Ads, Marcus. It's all about the Google oh, Ads. Oh, really? Okay, fair enough. Van, it's always wonderful to talk to you. Um, oh, it's lovely to talk to you too. Uh, the week on Wednesday, um, it's, of course, um, uh, available on all podcast platforms. Um, and your, your article in The Guardian is up there. You're still doing some television? You're, you're still on the Today Show occasionally? Or? Oh, whenever they call. Okay. Whenever they call, I'm always happy to turn up. You know me, I just love to chat. Yeah, of course. Uh, but I'm doing a lot of live appearances. So I'm at the Words on the Waves Festival in beautiful Etong on the weekend. Okay. Um, I'll be at Word Fest in Mount Waverley at the end of June. I'll be at Willie Lit in a couple of weeks in Williamstown <laughs> in Melbourne. Um, I'm going up to Brisbane to talk about social media literacy. All of these things I advertise on my Twitter and my Facebook. And I just did a lovely interview with the great Adam Zwa on mm. his podcast, which Wonderful. is floating around my social media as well. All right. Uh, I'll have to check that. I haven't seen that one yet. No, you know, Maybe I can get some tips off him too. Wonderful stuff. Oh, well, I've got to say the, the interview turned out into a story of some of my favourite uh, personal disasters. So <laughs> it was quite cathartic. <laughs> All right. Well, um, I, I won't say, well, three and a half months uh, till wedding time. Don't forget, you, you need to save that date in September, okay? Oh, we'll be there, Marcus. We wouldn't miss it. Can't wait. All right. But I'll talk to you uh, before then, I'm sure. Van, always good to catch up. Van Batten from The Guardian Australia. Oh, how's the book going? It, it's still selling? Um, yes, it is still selling really well. It is still a Q and on and on and on and on. 
Yes, um, it's it's really found an audience, and it's been interesting. I've been getting emails from all over the world by people who've had friends who've gone down the rabbit hole and were looking for a bit of advice. Yeah, sure. And I found my book really useful to that particular experience. Outstanding. So it's still selling, and I'm now working on the next one. Ooh, can't wait. All right, we'll talk about that in due course. Van, thank you for joining us here on the program. Always appreciate it. All right, darling, you take care. Bye. Okay, welcome back. Something a little lighter now. Um, a lot of my followers and, uh, you know, those that catch up with us and our content on social media, um, you know, are really savvy when it comes to Instagram in particular. I know you are. So what do you think is Australia's most snapped locational suburb? It used to be Melbourne's Yarraville, but it's now Surrey Hills in Sydney, according to a a new report. Inner City Sydney has proved its worth in the eyes of social media users. It may be a little noisy, it may be densely populated, but thanks to a vibrant cafe culture and a colourful history, Surrey Hills has taken out a new digital accolade as Australia's most Instagrammed neighbourhood. The inner city suburb came 11th in a list of 50 famous neighbourhoods across the world. It attracted some 599,000 plus hashtags on Insta. It eclipsed the only other Australian locality on the list, the inner west Melbourne suburb of Yarraville, by more than, well, it smashed it, by more than 300,000 plus hashtags. (laughs) And ranked before trendy neighbourhoods in Tokyo, London and San Francisco. To come up with the ranking, UK commercial real estate agency Savoy Stewart used Forbes, Complex and Time Out to determine the most famous neighbourhoods in the world. They then entered each suburb name into Instagram and noted the number of tags before ranking in the order of most to fewest. The name of the place was used with other relevant tags. In the case of Surrey Hills, the following hashtags were used. Hashtag Surrey Hills. Hashtag Surrey Hills Life. Hashtag Surrey Hills Sydney. There we go. The diverse suburb has become more gentrified in recent years with the media house price, median, sorry, house price spiking 20.8% over the past 12 months alone. In other words, it's bloody expensive. One relatively recent review of Surrey Hills described it as a notable area for being a suburb full of yuppies, hipsters and house homes. <laughs> All right, well, Yarraville uh, in Melbourne, it came, uh, where it came 19th on the list. It had some 267,000 tags. Not bad. And Yarraville is quite nice, but... You know, I'm Sydney born and bred, I have to say. It's, um, yeah, I, I don't mind Surrey Hills. What do you think the uh, the most hashtagged locality is in the world on Instagram? Well, with 5 million plus hashtags, it's a place called Wynwood, Miami. Really? Anyway, Savoy Stewart can reveal that Wynwood in Miami, Florida has been crowned the most Instagrammable neighbourhood in the world with over 5.2 million photos tagged. This neighbourhood is famous for its trendy street art, 
which has turned into an outdoor museum where graffiti and street artists have displayed their work for all to see. Clothing stores, bistros and late night nightlife also make it attractive as an entertainment paradise to young people. I'm just looking at some of the photos here in Wynwood, Miami. Very nice. Uh, the second, miles behind, to be honest, with 2.97 million tags. Shinjuku in Tokyo. Okay. Over 2.9 million hashtags. When you scroll through the Shinjuku tags on Insta, you are greeted with images of a bustling cityscape full of bright neon skyscrapers. Among the tallest buildings, clubs and bustling shopping malls, you can also find the National Stadium there, which is a multi-purpose stadium used for the 2020 uh, Tokyo Olympics. Um, all right, number three, and we'll just do the top three, is Astoria in Queens, in New York. It's in third place. With more than two million photos tagged, Astoria is known for its range of traditional multicultural cuisines as well as more modern fusion restaurants, meaning it is paradise for foodies. Well, there we go. Oh, by the way, Pretoria uh, is the fourth most Instagrammed location. And number five, we'll leave it there, Silver Lake in Los Angeles with 1.306 million tags. Okay, well, as I say, Australia not in the top 10, but just outside with Surrey Hills, Australia's most Instagrammed location. Marcus Paul in the morning. Okay, great to have you company. Thursday morning, Marcus Paul in the morning, right around Australia on Starter FM and the iHeartRadio platform. We're also, of course, on Instagram ourselves. Marcus Paul in the morning there. Um, now, when was the last time you went to the doctors? Do you bulk bill? Well, uh, I'm, I was reading a story yesterday that indicates that a number of medical centres are now scrapping bulk billing as their costs increase, and in particular in the eastern suburbs of Sydney. Yeah, well, I suppose if people can afford those houses in Bondi, I'm sure they can afford to pay a doctor. I don't know. Anyway, Eastern Suburbs Medical Centres to cut bulk billing services. Amid yeah, rising costs is what they're saying. Elizabeth Bay residents, uh, her name is Marilyn Eccles. She said she was shocked when she was told she would need to pay $90 up front for her visit to the Darlinghurst Medical Centre. I've had quite a few bills recently and I thought, my gosh, if I hadn't had my credit cards there, I would have had to go somewhere else. But Miss Eccles said it would have been almost impossible to find another medical centre at short notice. She said she was desperately in need of medical attention, so she really sort of felt trapped. Miss Eccles is among a group of residents in the eastern suburbs who say they now have been blindsided by a raft of medical centres halting bulk billing services which allow patients, of course, to fully reimburse their visit through Medicare. And this has been happening in recent weeks. Why? Well, experts say while rising costs are straining the budgets of medical centres across the country, those located in more affluent areas, i.e. the eastern suburbs, are more likely to increase costs because the majority of their patients will still be able to pay. 
Darlinghurst Medical Centre will continue to offer bulk billing for concession card holders, veterans and patients over the age of 75. Meanwhile, another major medical centre at Bondi Junction. Uh, the seven-day medical centre will adopt the same rules, apparently, in the middle of this month. OK. Um, but for Miss Eccles, who uh, we mentioned just before, she manages several medical conditions, including diabetes. She works full-time and she isn't eligible for a concession card. So after paying the upfront costs... Miss Eccles said she received a $51 rebate in her account two days later. The upfront cost and $39 payment for a visit to a doctor was still a big hit to her budget. She said she felt blindsided by the charges. All right, well, what do you say? Um, I don't think it's right, to be honest. But anyway, I suppose you can, you know, buy beware, you can go to other medical centres. Stephen Mason, who's the CEO of the non-profit patient advocacy group, the Australian Patients Association, well, he told the Wentworth Courier newspaper that increased costs in running medical centres in the past few years had not been matched by Medicare. Mr Mason says a lot of clinics are saying the rebate from the government hasn't been increased for quite a few years. So they've made some policy decisions now where in the areas where they've got a, a bit of discretion, they're thinking, let's chip away at the margins. They just chip away at the edge. Now, Mr Mason said internal research showed in wealthier areas, people told them they would continue to visit their medical centre even if a co-payment system was introduced. It's not going to affect everyone, he said, but those who it does affect will be in an awkward position where they're going to have to choose between visits to the doctor. Now, Mr Mason also suggested the changes may have been put in place to pressure the newly elected Labor government to look at the Medicare rebate. It could be an opportunity, he said, to put a bit of pressure on the new government because we know the Australian Medical Association has wanted rebate increases, saying it's not sufficient to cover the costs. By reducing bulk billing, that puts a bit of pressure on the new government to look at the rates and increase them. The Department of Health told the Wentworth Courier GPs and their practices operate as private businesses and they are free to do what they like. They can determine the value of their service, including whether they bulk bill or not, or whether they charge a co-payment. The Medical Board of Australia, which regulates all doctors and their professional practice, has established a code of conduct for Australian doctors, including GPs. This states that good medical practice involves ensuring your patients are informed about your fees and charges in a timely manner to enable them to make an informed decision about whether they want to proceed with consultations or treatments. All right, well, our example, Ms Eccles, uh, she told the newspaper she was looking for a new medical practice now in the area that did bulk bill, despite using the Darlinghurst Centre for nearly 30 years. Uh, well, that'll probably happen in a number of areas if they continue to scrap bulk billing and introduce co-payments. Uh, she said she's disappointed about the bind that she was placed in when she discovered that she was no longer able to use bulk billing. Um, it, it all comes down to letting people know, I guess. I mean, it is a bit annoying. Maybe it's a bit disgraceful. Even uh, Miss Eccles said that that community wasn't more uh, prepared or wasn't given 
uh, any notice. I mean, if you're going to change your, your billing practices, well, the least you can do is perhaps make contact with your patients, who effectively are your customers, to let them know that there's a change, rather than walking in sick one day to a medical centre and getting a shock they have to put their hand in their pocket. Marcus Paul in the morning. Yeah, Marcus Paul in the morning. Welcome back. Nice to have your company Thursday. Um, hopefully where you are, the winds have eased a little, uh, particularly if you're on the east coast of Australia yesterday. My God! It was freezing, and uh, the wind's crazy. Quite dangerous, too, if you're out driving with uh, tree branches and all sorts of things. Well done to, of course, as always, those angels in orange, as I call them, uh, the hard workers, volunteers from the state emergency service who were kept pretty busy during that wild and woolly weather. Uh, the snow looks fantastic, even as low as 900 metres in some areas in the Blue Mountains and the, uh, the Southern Tablelands. And, uh, well, I guess the, um, the, the resort, ski resort operators will be very happy down Threadbow, Perisher and the like. Okay, um, there's some economic figures that came out yesterday that no doubt the new Treasurer Jim Chalmers was peering over. Our economy, the Australian economy, grew 0.8% in the March quarter and 33 over the past year. That's according to official gross domestic product figures from the Australian Bureau of Stats. Economists had typically been expecting quarterly growth of 0.5%, half a percent, and 2.9% over the year to March the 31st. They say the biggest contributors to the better-than-expected result were a rise in inventories as businesses restock following some supply chain disruptions, household consumption is up a little, government spending is also up 0.6%. But the ABS figures note a fall in household savings and a rise in incomes both contributed to the increase in spending, which was mainly directed to transport services, that's up 60%, recreation and culture, up 4.8%, and hotels and cafes and restaurants, up 5.3%, as COVID-19 restrictions, of course, eased somewhat. So that is good news. Okay, the biggest drag on the Australian economy was a surge in imports, which subtracted 1.7 percentage points from gross domestic product, as some COVID-related supply bottlenecks eased and businesses restocked. The ABS also noted that for the first three months of this year, we saw the biggest jump in imports since the December quarter of 2009, for goodness sake. All right. The ABS reported a 1.8% uh, increase in the compensation of employees during the quarter. So that's wages. So wages growth is up what? 1.8%. Even though hours worked fell 0.9%, mainly due, of course, to Omicron and COVID-19 related absences. But... You know, uh, it's certainly not keeping pace. There's no doubt it's not keeping pace with the cost of living. The rise in pay was matched by a 1.9% rise in employed persons, meaning that increased pay was spread across more workers. That's good. 
The ABS also recorded a jump in labour productivity of 1.7% over the quarter as workers maintained output despite staff absences, leading to a strong productivity gain of 2.8% over the past year. This resulted in a 2.7% annual fall in so-called real labour costs. Now, that's a measure of the cost of wages as a share of output produced. It comes as no surprise, then, that the so-called gross operating surplus, basically profits, of non-financial businesses jumped 7.3% in the quarter. Led by mining, of course, due to big commodity price increases for LNG, coal and iron ore, and wholesale trade on improved profit margins for grains, petroleum and cars. But the ABS noted a fall in profits for manufacturers, largely driven by a rise in input costs, as well as falls for construction, hospitality and other services as government subsidies wound down. Over the past year, Compensation of employees or wages has risen 5.5%, with much of the increase reflecting a greater number of people actually in employment rather than real wage increases. Over the same period, the gross operating surplus of non-financial businesses has surged 21.6%. So what's the take-home from all of that? Well... I guess economic growth is beating expectations. Profits are outpacing wages. There we go. So GDP rose more than economists were expecting, with the economy growing 3.3% over the past year. Wages were up 5.5% over the past year, but business profits were up 21.6%. The biggest surge in imports since December 2009 was the biggest drag on the Australian economy. Some key figures out, as I said, no doubt, the new treasurer, Jim Chalmers, and his staff will be peering over those numbers. Absolutely. Marcus Paul in the morning. Okay, well, that's about it for today's program. Thank you for tuning in here on starterfm.com.au on the iHeartRadio platform. And, of course, uh, for your comments on our social media, Marcus Paul in the morning on Facebook. And for those subscribing on YouTube, thank you for your comments on the videos. More of those will go up. Um, There'll be a podcast dropping a little later. We call it the Prawncast. um, And, naturally, it will include my chat with the wonderful Van Badham from the Guardian Australia. Enjoy the rest of the day. Let's hope things start to warm up just a little bit. But I mean, after all, we are now into winter. I'm not so worried about the cold. It's just the bloody wind with that wind chill factor. Thank you again to the wonderful SES and volunteers and everybody, first responders, police, ambos, fireys, that keep us safe in terrible weather conditions. Enjoy your day. We'll catch up again tomorrow between 7 and 9 around Australia, Australian Eastern Standard Time. Good to have you here today. Please tune in again tomorrow. If you are what listening into the Prawncast, the podcast, if you wouldn't mind, give it a share on your social media. I'd appreciate that. Marcus Paul in the morning. Bye for now. If you like, you can give me a call. What's the number, Marcus? 0406521250. Anytime, 24-7. Call me, I'll have your say on the Marcus Paul in the Morning Show. On Starter FM.